Welcome to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast, where we get to bring you sermons and content to help bring you closer to Jesus, develop your faith, and keep you up to date with everything young adults. Join us Sunday nights in the SCG Church warehouse for our young adult service or at our main campus services on Saturday nights or Sunday mornings. We hope you enjoy. Amen, amen. All right, you guys may be seated. Well, uh, Merry Christmas, like I said earlier. Welcome to our Christmas party. And if you're new, uh, special shout out. My name's Matt. Glad you guys are here. Just the dude that gets to uh, speak to you guys tonight. Now, uh, before we kind of hop into where we're headed today, let me reiterate what we got going on. Under the little house over there, um, we got baked goods. Over at our cafe, we got a bunch of coffee, um, caffeinated things, and cocoa. In the hall over there, there is, uh, Santa's going to be over there, so you want to take photos over there. Outside, can't drop your Bible. That's, that's a sin. Uh, outside, we have um, tacos. Obviously, it's all free because we're all poor. Um, and then we got like 20 tons of snow outside, a bunch of other fun things. Am I forgetting anything? Did I forget something? I think we're good. I think, yeah, okay, good. All right, opening question before we hop into where we're headed today is this. Do you, at your house or growing up, have any family Christmas traditions? All right, so at your household, growing up, family Christmas traditions, you got 30 seconds, turn to a neighbor, ready, set, Go. All right, all right, bring it on up, bring it on up. Just real quick, raise your hand at your household. You got Christmas family traditions. You could be setting a tree up together, putting ornaments, making ornaments, uh, gingerbread houses, drinking cocoa, whatever it is. All right, you can put your hands down. All right, so at the San Franny household growing up, my mom is like uh, really, really into nativity scenes. You know what I'm saying? Like we had like 87 of them around our house, right? She would make them um, and she would buy them and like every room had to have some. We had pictures of nativity scenes, whatever it was. And so each and every single year, as I kind of look back in hindsight at the rearview mirror of my life, I kind of remember that type of stuff. And one of the things I like to do is, it's kind of sad, but I like to uh, Google cringy or creative like nativity set scenes, you know? And so people come up with the craziest things. And so I think I have a, I have a few photos of, of the nativity scenes that people have come up with over the years. Do we have, a, do we have a, a slide for that? Are they good back there? Do they have them? They don't have them? They don't have them? Is it not working? No, they were funny. All right, um, well, maybe later. Maybe later I'll show you. There's one with like a, um, like a bunch of Bud Light, which is like, I don't know how to feel about that. Um, one was like cigarettes, others was hot dogs. I don't know like what these people, anyways, I thought it was funny. All right, so uh, I was thinking about the nativity scene, right? And uh, obviously not the cringy ones I get to show you, but the nativity scene is actually really important, right? And it, I think one of the reasons my mom was so gravitated towards it, especially when we were kids, because she wanted us to learn the lesson of what the nativity scene and setting was really all about, about the person, the present of Christmas, right? It centers itself around the person and present of Christmas. But it's also a picture of a where and a when that gives us the what and the why of our lives. I'll say it this way. The nativity scene is a picture of a where and a when that gives us the why and the what of our lives. We'll start with right, the where. God showed up where? In Bethlehem. Bethlehem, nowheresville, right? Modern day, Bakersfield, right? No one's stoked to live in Bakersfield. That is what ancient Bethlehem was like. And there was a prophecy that was thousands of years before the birth of Christ, or at least hundreds of years, that the Messiah, the king of the universe, would be born in Bakersfield. What? It's crazy. Right, But not just that, he was going to be born, that the king and savior of humanity, God himself was going to be born as a baby. What? I mean, what other religion, what other worldview has a God that is perfect, holy, mighty, and just that becomes a baby? I mean, I have a baby right now, right? She's, I don't know if she's a baby anymore. She's 10 months, right? But like, my gosh, I look at her and I go like, you can't do anything. 
Like, you can't even feed yourself. You can't clean your diaper. You can't do anything. God became a baby. Like, it just blows my mind, especially as I look into the eyes of my daughter, Noel, right? And not just that. He was born in a manger. My wife gave birth in Hogue, looking at Newport. Beautiful, right? Jesus, God, born in a manger. Now, we think manger is like this cozy little environment, right? It was like a, it was like a little wood thing. It was all warm and cozy. Nah, that's not what a manger was. A manger was basically a cave that was damp and moist, which is a horrific word. And, that's, and it was where animals slept at night. So you can imagine Joseph, like, trying to shoo away, like, the animals, hopefully not a bear or whatever, right? Like, trying to, like, clean things off. It's like, Mary, there's a spot with no algae. That's you right there. You know, like, just a terrible situation, a manger. And then you get the win, right? The win was 2,000 years ago. But I often get asked this question from students. Why then? I mean, why did God decide to come then, not now, not before that, not in the age of social media, so it could be like, people could be like, dude, he's walking on water, you know, whatever, right? Why, why then? Well, let me give you a quick little history lesson. Tune in, and if you don't like history, I apologize, but it's important for where we're headed. 600 years before the birth of Christ, the Persian Empire was the superpower, the supreme power of the entire world at that time. Now, the Persians did something interesting, and the reason I think that God allowed the Persian Empire to be the superpower is they were friendly to the Jewish people. See, centuries before there, there was an evil king named King Nebuchadnezzar, and he enslaved the Israelites in Babylon, and I'll talk about that maybe in a second. So anyways, after him, the Persian Empire comes, and they allow the Jews to go back to Israel and rebuild their temple. If you know the story of Nehemiah and Ezra, it takes place during that time. And so why? Because there was a prophecy hundreds of years before the birth of Christ that Jesus Christ was going to teach in a Jewish temple one day. So God is orchestrating the Persian Empire so that he's, he's going to put in place a favorable king over the Jewish people so that they would allow the Jews to go back and rebuild the temple. So 600 years later, a man named Jesus Christ would be able to teach and fulfill a prophecy in that, in, in that temple. The next, is this, the next empire had a very specific purpose. It was the Grecian Empire, the Greek Empire, led by a man named Alexander the Great. Now, he's given that name because he was pretty impressive. He conquered the world by 30. I turned 30 in, what's the date? Nine days, right? So, like, like, like I'm thinking, dude, my life sucks. Like, you know, like, like, this guy conquered the world, right? Like, what am I doing in my life, right? So, anyways, um, Alexander the Great was a really impressive dude. And one of the things that he did was he impressed upon the entire world an educational system like the world had never seen. He raised the literacy level of the entire world, then forced the entire known world at that time to learn one language. It wasn't Spanish. It was Greek. That was the language that he taught everyone and forced everyone to learn. Now, here's what's interesting about that. If you know your Bible, you'll know that in the book of Genesis, it talks about something called the Tower of Babel, where the entire world spoke one language, where you get the word Babel, babbling. My daughter babbles right now, right? Babbling. Language, words. Now, never since the time of Babel had the world spoken one language since the time of Babel and the time of Alexander the Great. He gave the entire world one language. This is important because the next empire. God allows Alexander to die. His kingdom gets split up into four, and then the Roman Empire comes and conquers the world. The Roman Empire was used by God for two reasons. Number one, they brought something called Pax Romana, Roman peace. Number two, Roman roads. For the first time in human history, People could travel freely through the world on these roads under this peace with a common language that came from Alexander a century beforehand. And so all of this happened so that when Jesus lived and Jesus died and Jesus resurrected, that the good news could be sent around the world on these roads under a time of peace with a common language. Here's what I need you to hear from this. All of human history, all of human history is not to tell our story, but it's to tell his story. It's to point to God's power and his ability, right, to orchestrate history in his favor. All kingdoms that rise and fall are orchestrated by his hand. All of it. Let me tell you what this means. God is not bigger than you think. 
He is bigger than you can think. That the same God that created the world controls the world and sent Jesus into the world at the perfect and right time. And so our passage for today is such an incredible Christmas passage and section of Scripture because it shows us the person and present of Christmas is always timely and is perfect for all people in all scenarios. If you have your Bibles, go with me. Open your Bibles up. Don't worry if you don't have your Bible. It'll be on the Sky Bible behind me. Um, it says this in the book of Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 6. Go there with me if you have a Bible. Chapter 9, verse 6, Isaiah. Really short. That's where we're camping out today, by the way, all right? It says, for to us the child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and he shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So I don't know if anyone else here is actually a parent or not, but um, I realize something that parents often do, right? They, they, they send, uh, uh, you know, birth announcements, and most birth announcements are sent, uh, you know, after the baby is born. Isaiah sends his birth announcement of who the Messiah, Yeshua, uh, would be 700 years before his actual birth. Why would he announce the birth of the Savior, the Messiah, so many years in advance? And this is because this, this announcement is so much more than a name or a title. They're actually promises of who this child will be to his people. And I want you to pay attention to that for where we go, because there are aspects of his character. They describe who he is and what he is going to do for his people. I'm going to read it one more time. I want you to follow along with me. It says this, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government should be upon his shoulders. Remember, this is a prophecy. God gave Isaiah a window into what the future was going to look like. Did he know his name was going to be Jesus? Did he know he was going to be born in Bethlehem? Well, that was a prophecy, yes. But the other things, probably not. Not his name or anything like that. And the government shall be upon his shoulders. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor. It's actually translated in the Greek, a wonder of counsel. And I love that that comes first. The others speak to his power, right? But this one allows us to see his heart before we get to see his strength. I remember uh, going to counseling for the very first time. And under the section, I remember sitting in this lobby with like the, like the weird elevator music. And there's like other people in there. But like at counseling, you don't lock eyes with anybody. You know what I'm saying? You're like, like, why are you here? Are you as messed up as I am? You know, like it's kind of an awkward conversation. You know, and it's not like, hi, my name is. I struggle with. It's not that, right? So anyways, I'm sitting there, right? And this little elevator music going on or whatever it is. And it's like, why are you here? And I was like, why am I here? And so I answered three things. I said, number one, family problems. Number two, I'm a dumpster fire. And number three, I need guidance, right? Good news, over six or seven years, um, I don't have the family problems. I got some guidance, but I'm still a dumpster fire. But anyways, one of the things, right, that I, I really loved about counseling was that it provided me a place to journey through my past so it didn't have to affect my future. One of the things where it says that Jesus is a wonderful counselor, that we should be awestruck by the counsel advice, the news that he can inform and give us, is that he informs and he teaches us that your past doesn't have to write your future. That if you will give him your past, he will give you a future. See, Jesus being a wonderful counselor shows us that God guides, but that he has a plan and he wants to be involved in your life, which is good news for those of us who don't know what our next step is. And chances are, if you are a young adult, you may not actually know what your next step is in life, and that's okay. You may not know, right, the, the why and the what of our lives. As a pastor, one of the most common questions that I get from people is like, and, and by the way, this is also one of the most popular um, types of books that are sold, whether that be Barnes & Noble or Amazon or wherever you buy books today, right? And the answer in the books, they center around one kind of, one, one question. Why do you or I exist? I mean, think of this just for a second. Everyone, from your parents right, to, to the acad uh, uh, academia, um, to social media, to culture, society, to uh, uh, even like the way things are marketed to us, they're all giving you a narrative of what your why and your what should be in your life, why you exist, what your life should be about. I read an article um, the other day about uh, the most Googled men right now 
on the entire planet. So these two men are the most Googled men by other men, young adults. Googling these men, there's two of them. The first is Jordan Peterson. So if you know who Jordan Peterson, he's a Canadian psychologist, and um, he has an interesting take in life, and I think he's got some good things to say. However, the next most Googled guy is fascinating to me. His name is Andrew Tate. And if you don't know who Andrew Tate is, like... I don't want you to Google him. Uh, like he's, I don't think he's got anything really good. You know, I don't know. But, uh, you know, what's so fascinating, by the way, these are the most Googled men by people between the ages of 18 and 30. That's all of us. Right? I mean, I'm turning 30 pretty soon, right? But it's, I'm still in the category. I'm still cool, right? I'm still hip, all right? So uh, it's in that category, right? So we have Jordan Peterson, a psychologist, Andrew Tate. I have no idea why this dude is famous. He's a kickboxer. Other than that, zero idea why he's famous, right? Both of these men, both of these men are trying to give you a what and a why of your life. Both these men are attempting to teach you what masculinity is about in a way to discover purpose and discover a truth, the truth really about your existence. So I'll give you an example, right? So Jordan Peterson, um, his whole thing is to find meaning, discover purpose, all that type of identity. All of it is actually to live life with attachments, right? So it's um, uh, get married, settle down, have a family, a son or a daughter or whatever it is. Your life is more full as you um, uh, build deeper and more meaningful relationships. On the flip side is Andrew Tate. He has a, um, a quote that I thought was fascinating. He said, if a girl breaks up with me, she's got 24 hours to get back with me. Why? Because on the 25th hour, a new girl will be in my bed. And I went like, this is what, this is what a bunch of 21-year-old frat dudes are, you know, like, this is what they're listening to. Are you kidding me right now? Like, this is, what is happening? You know, like, that, that, this guy, the most, again, most Googled guy on the planet right now, not just in America, 18 to 30-year-olds, Right? And I started to think, why? Why are both of these guys who are giving a script of masculinity, a, a, a why and what of your life, so popular right now? And I think it's because we're experiencing a crisis of purpose right now. I mean, we have more than any other generation in human history. I mean, I'm baffled by Amazon. I'll, I'll sit there. I could, do, I, could order, dude, I could order anything. Dude, I could order Santa Claus, right? It'll pop up to my house in two hours. This is nuts. We have more than any and we have more in access to more than any other generation in human history, which, by the way, is what we were told. If you can have more to your life, you will have a greater identity. You'll have more fulfillment, whatever it may be. Yet, we are simultaneously more lost than any other generation in human history. Let me ask you a question. Is life more difficult now than it was during the Great Depression? World War I or World War II? Is life more difficult now than it was for young adults during the draft of Vietnam where men were sent out of their neighborhoods never to come home? Is life more difficult now than then? No, of course not. Then why are young adults killing themselves at rates significantly higher than any other young adult generation in human history? Why are we overdosing on our anxiety medications? Why are we more lost now than ever? Could it be that the reason we're more lost now than ever is because we are more disconnected individually and corporately as a society from God than ever before? See, I think this is the case, and here's why. Because you'll never understand your why until you understand your who. You'll never understand your why until you understand who created you. Christmas teaches us that the God who made you, well, he hasn't left you. And that God has experienced all that you and I have experienced and even more. That's one of the beauties of the idea of the incarnation. I'll talk about it in a second. That God has experienced literally everything that you and I have experienced. And therefore, you can trust him. You can rely. You can lean on him because he knows. But he also has the power to comfort, strengthen, and bring you through whatever you are currently go th going through. And so see, it is good news that, that Jesus is a wonderful counselor because it means he has the ability to meet you where you are, experience what you've experienced, to take you where he wants you to go. So here's my, my little pastoral piece of application and advice here, advice here. 
invite this wonderful counselor into the decisions of your life. God, is this the person, right, that you want me to be romantically involved in? God, is this the degree that you want me to pursue or devote myself to, even though I may have already been pursuing something else? God, could you reveal to me the calling that you have on my life, the why to my life? God, could you reveal to me when it is my time for the, to date, when it isn't my time? When it is my time to say yes to this job, when it isn't? When, it, when is it time for me to change jobs? Whatever it may be. Let me say it to you this way. Jesus has the answers to your life because he is the author of your life. Jesus has the answers to your life because he primarily is the author of your life. There's an author named uh, John Ortberg. He says this in picking this up in a book entitled God is Closer Than You Think. I don't know if I have the quote. I do have it for you. It says this, we often want to be able to hear, God, to hear guidance from God about important decisions, such as whom to marry, what job to take. But we also want to reserve the right to feed our minds on whatever junk comes along. Whatever repeatedly enters the mind occupies the mind, eventually shapes the mind, and will ultimately express itself in what you do and who you become. The events we attend, the materials we read or don't, the music we listen to, the images we watch, the conversations we hold, the daydreams we entertain, these are shaping our mind, and ultimately, they make our minds receptive or deaf to the still, small voice of God. If you really want to know like, what your ambitions are in life, what you dream about, what you really kind of worship, subscribe ultimate worth to, it's that which you daydream about. What fills and occupies your idle mind? I mean, when you're not watching Netflix or Hulu or whatever else you're doing, um, if you don't turn on the music while you're driving home tonight, what immediately pops into your mind? Is it greed? Is it materialism? Is it power? One day you want to own a company and be the boss? Is it, what is it? Is it the loneliness, like I just want a boy or a guy or a girl in my life? Like, like what, what is it? What fills your empty mind? That's what's shaping your life right now because it shaped your mind. What he's communicating in this, in, in this is that one of the things that makes Jesus such a wonderful counselor is that if we allow him to shape our minds by giving us counsel, we allow him to shape our lives. So your question is, okay, how does, how does this wonderful counselor, how does God, how can he begin to shape my mind? And it's by three ways. Number one, by anchoring yourself in his word. Colossians says, set your mind on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. We'll come back to that in a second. Number two is by rooting yourself in prayer. And then three, being aware of what you are allowing to shape your mind. Like I said, where your idle mind goes to, that is what primarily has shaped your mind. It's what you care most about. So Paul comes in in Romans 12 too. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. Be transformed. What's the Greek word for transform? It's the word metamorphosis. Do you guys know a, a, a caterpillar becoming a butterfly through the process of metamorphosis? A complete disassemblance to made something new, completely and 100% new. Be transformed, be made 100% new by what? By the renewing of your mind. That you may test and you may discern what God's perfect, pleasing, and perfect will is for your life. It all begins by allowing God to shape your mind. We can do that through prayer by reading his word, but also by being cognizant of what is already shaping your mind. Number two, mighty God. It translates in the Greek, heroic, strong God who saves. I mean, really think of this. It's kind of really hard to wrap our mind around the Christmas narrative and story that God was born in a manger, right? That he was deity in diapers, that he was a God in a bod. I mean, like this is, this is a difficult story to truly digest, but Isaiah's prophecy teaches us that Jesus was fully God yet simultaneously fully man. Right, that he was not just a good man, but that he was a God-man. And what this means is that not only can he understand you as a wonderful counselor, but because he's mighty God, he has the power to change you and change the world around you, and most importantly, to save you and I. Listen closely. When the Gospels talk about salvation or the idea that Jesus came to save, it's so much more than that he came to save you and I from hell. No, the Gospels, they teach us and tell us that Jesus didn't just save us from something, but to something, right, to his redemptive 
uh, plan, to a greater purpose and plan for your life by giving, I need you to hear this, a new identity. The truth is, I don't think we just have an existential crisis in purpose. And one of the reasons I think we have an existential crisis as a society, and you know, people like Jordan Peterson and Andrew Tate are popular now, is not because we just have an existential crisis in purpose and meaning, but I think we have an existential crisis in purpose and meaning because we first have a crisis of identity. We don't know who we are anymore. The world is working extra hard right now to, to name you by telling you what your core identity primarily is. I mean, what's your gender? What's your sexual, orienta- what's your sexual orientation identity? What's your gender identity? What's your national identity? What's your political identity? What is your um, ancestral identity, right? Who am I? Who, who gets to tell me in this world who I actually am? And then we have the identities, right, that we, we try and we create. We have our occupational identities. I am where I work. Uh, we have our academic identities. I'm only as good as the college that I went to that unlocks opportunities for what I can do with my life. Or my social media identity, what I, what I project to the world around me. And then Christmas comes in to all these different pressures and the idea of performing for an identity. And Christmas comes in and says, at Christmas, God came not so that you can achieve an identity, but rather you can receive an identity from him. And I want to hear the next thing. This thing is pivotal to understanding what Christmas is really about. Christmas saves you. Christmas saves me from having to make a name for ourselves. I want you to hold on to that thought because we're going to come back to it because it's tethered to the next name we're going to, we're, uh, Everlasting Father we'll get to in a second. But I want you to follow with me here just for a second. We develop our, self, our concept of self by watching how other people react to the different versions of, of ourselves as we present ourselves to other people. I'll give you an example. I can see this in my daughter now, right? So she, uh, she just learned how to open her gate, which is a nightmare. And um, so she'll like wander over to the gate and she'll do this thing where she'll like, she'll like put her hand on the latch and she'll look at me. And she'll like, and I'll go, no, 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 no. And she'll like look up and then, no, 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 no. And if I go in louder or louder, she like puts her hand on. But she's always kind of testing, you know, like how does dad, how is, how is dad responding to this? Is this something that's going to please him? Is it going to make him angry? Like, and things like that. And she does that with food, does it with a bunch of other things, right? She's looking at me to gauge how she should, how she'd act, who she should be in that moment. In psychology, this is simply called the looking glass self. And truth be told, it actually does have some biblical or real affinities with the biblical teaching that were made in God's image and made to reflect him. I mean, think of it this way, right? Just as a mirror cannot generate light, it only can reflect light. With the human heart, it cannot generate a need for validation either. It can only reflect validation that's given to it. I'll say it to you this way. We need validation from someone outside of us. We cannot validate ourselves, and that's because fundamentally we are relational beings. Listen to this next part. We acquire our identities relationally. I'll give you an example, right? So uh, think back to lunch in high school. Everyone sits right in, uh, in their place with their type of people, right? So think back to what I went to Cypress High School right here, right? So you had the skaters, you had the, uh, the baseball players, you had the geeks, you had the jocks, um, you had the people that are in ASB, no one liked them, and uh, no, I'm playing, um, I'm just kidding. And, uh, and then you had the football players, and they were normally sitting right next to the cheerleaders because they're trying to shoot their shot, right? They're trying to get, they're trying to get a girlfriend, right? And then we grow up. And we grow out of high school and we head off to college where we fill our lives with new communities, new people, and we learn to form new identities. I mean, if you don't believe me, just ask an average college girl to tell you about themselves. They almost always start with, I'm a beta, alpha, terra, ido, whatever, like, whatever it is, right? Uh, it's like the identity of like those four years of your life. It's, it's, you know, what color, where's your house, whatever it is, right? And then, or I don't know, ask an average high schooler, right? Ask, ask a high schooler guy like who they are, what, what, what they are, things along those lines. They'll say things like, um, I don't know. I'm a football player, I'm a swimmer, etc. The point is, we 
get our identities and sense of worth by what we do as it's tethered to who we are connected to. We get them relationally. And God knows this, and this is why he was willing to step from heaven into humanity to build a relationship with the very people that he created so that he could form a relationship with you so he could fill your life with himself. I want you to think of it this way. No other religion has a God as relational as the one of Christianity. The whole purpose of the incarnation is that God could have a real relationship with you, which brings us to the next title, Everlasting Father. The Bible couldn't be clearer from cover to cover that God is like a good father who wants a relationship with his children. Now, I realize, right, that in the amount of people that are here, that for some of you, the word father sums up something positive, right? I mean, you grew up and you had a great and intentional father. He loved you and you felt safe, provided for, and sought after. I realize for another segment of us here tonight, right, when you hear the word father, something extremely negative comes up. He was controlling and selfish. Maybe he was absent, abusive, an alcoholic, whatever it may be. Uh, one, thing I, uh, one of the greatest learnings for me was that God is not a reflection of my earthly father, but rather the perfection of what it means to be a good father. I also realized for another segment of us or category of us here today that when you hear the word father, it's not just negative, it's painful. Growing up, right, you wanted nothing more than a father, and you grew up with an ache in the place that your father was supposed to bring peace, was supposed to provide encouragement, was supposed to give you a sense of identity or hope or value or worth. And so for many of us here today, you maybe don't have a good and present father, but what this te- story teaches us and what this verse and this, this, this title teaches us is that you can have a good and present heavenly father. This, the, the concept of fatherhood in Scripture is actually really important for us to understand. In ancient Israel and in the ancient world, it was primarily the father of the household who got to form the, the identity of their family and even name each and every individual child. In fact, even in ancient or even Jewish culture today, in modern culture, it's the father's absolute right to name his children because I want you to hear this. In Jewish culture, names implant identity and destiny. In Jewish culture, the father has a right to name their child because it implants to them identity and destiny. I'll give you an example of this. Um, In in the story of Daniel, right? His name is Daniel. And if you know that story, you know that he had this crazy life from being basically dragged from Iran to Israel, modern-day Iran and Israel, to ancient um, Babylon and and, and Israel. So there's like a four or 500-mile hike. He's 13. He gets there, and he lives his entire life in Babylon as an exile in a world that's not like the one that he was from, where everyone was Jewish, and now no one's Jewish. And so he gets there and he lives 69 long years faithfully following Jesus, or Yahweh at the time. What does his name Daniel translate to? God is my judge. He lives his, it's a prophetic name. He lives his entire life as literally if God's the only judge that matters. I don't care about the opinions of other people. His name is prophetically given to him because I will live as if there's an audience of one, God himself watching and evaluating my life. I won't compromise in my faith. The next one is Joseph. If you know the story of Joseph, his story begins as him being thrown down a well because his brothers want to kill him because they hate him because their dad likes him the most. So eventually they come with a plan, well, let's not kill him, let's sell him into slavery, right? Because then we can at least get some money and then we'll tell dad that a bear or a lion or something ended up killing him, right? And so that's what they end up doing. Fast forward and the slave becomes the vice president, basically, of the known world at the time, 30 or 40 years after that incident. What does Joseph, his prophetic name, mean? It means God will give opportunities. God will give restoration. God will give. The last one's Paul. I'll give you an example here. Um, We meet Paul as Saulus, Saul, Paul. 
not a ch- Solus was his Hebrew name. Paul was his Greek name. God didn't rename him. But anyways, so uh, we meet Saul, and he is a zealous guy. He's actually really full of pride. But then we, God meets him on the road to Damascus, and what happens? God literally demasks him. He literally uh, uh, pulls his mask off for who he really is, brings down his pride. And what does the word Paul translate to? Humility, or to be humble. God humbled him so he could reveal himself. God's in the business of names and naming people. I want you to pay a close attention to this an encounter with an angel and Joseph, Jesus' earthly father. I guess you would say his stepdad. Um, I guess it would be the best way to think of that, right? In the book of Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, this is an angel, and I want you to pay, this is an angel telling Joseph about the baby that Mary is going to deliver. She, Mary, will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. I want you to notice something with me, that the angel takes away Joseph's ability to name his son, or his stepson. By refusing to let him name Jesus, the angel is saying, if Jesus is in your life, You are not his manager. This child who is about to be born is your manager. You do not name him. He names you. You do not give him an identity. He gives you an identity. He gives you destiny. He gives you meaning. He gives you purpose. Here's what you and I, what you need and what I need most from Jesus is to allow him to name us so we don't spend the rest of our lives trying to make a name for ourselves. There's a book that I was reading a while back, and I shared this kind of analogy with you before. It's called Father Fiction. And in it, the author surveys the top 100 largest companies on the planet. And in it, he finds something really interesting, that over 80% of these companies, all led by men, over 80% of these companies, these men grew up in single-parent households where the dad left them, and they were, only, they were only raised by their mom. Let me just ask you a question in light of that data. These are the most wealthy and successful people that are leading massive companies. Over, I think it's 86% of the top 100 companies, all don't have dads. Is it possible that their success comes not from a sense of strength, but from a place of weakness? But did they push so hard, they busy themselves with performance and achieving because they're chasing a name. They're chasing a place of okayness and a place of acceptance. Let me ask you more of a personal question. Do you have someone in your life who's always busy? I mean, always grinding, right? Always performing. And they just feel like you just, they just can't slow down because to slow down, to do less means I am less. I mean, could it be right that, that their dad never gave them a name, which, to, which is one of the father's roles to encourage, to add courage into someone's life? Maybe it was their dad, they never gave them the love that they needed or the validation they needed. And so now they need to go search for validation in a person. And so their history from junior high is in and out of a relationship with a guy or a girl, trying to get that sense of value and worth from another person. Or maybe not their person, it's a performance. So I'm going to achieve. I'm going to be the best on the sports team. I'm going to get all the trophies and accolades because I need to build my identity either through a person or through performance. Hear me in this. The present of Christmas encourages us to let the person of Christmas name us. And the first and primary name that he gives us is his, his son or his daughter in whom he loves dearly. The last title, Prince of Peace. The more and more that I... Uh, I live my life and I get to encounter thousands of people, I realize that one of the emotions that permeates most people's lives is fear and anxiety. I mean, growing up, right, I, I really battled with anxiety or really like anything that you would consider the opposite of peace. That, that's where I was at, right? I'd wake up in the middle of the night sometimes just with these panic attacks. And, and I remember being clear, clear in my thought, like, what am I so anxious about? My heart's racing 140 beats in my, what am I so anxious about? I remember in eighth grade once I was sitting in my math class. Out of nowhere, I just started to have a panic attack. And I'm sitting there knowing that there's nothing that should cause me this, this, this level of anxiety. And so I tell you all to say that like these feelings of 
anxiousness or anxiety aren't foreign to me. And I'm willing to bet that they're not foreign to you either. I think at some level, each and every single one of us, what we're really looking for is peace. And the truth is, I think companies know this. That's why they create, prom- they, they create products that promise this peace of mind, right? Think of this. We can have extended warranties on everything, right? Literally, you can get warranties or life insurance policies on, like, animals. I read a story once that someone got a life insurance policy on a goldfish. Like, what the? Like, what? The, like, what, what? Like, that's wild, right? Or we have cameras out our front doors to, uh, to, to, to uh, keep, give us the peace of mind of who is at our front door, right? Because we don't have the awkward interaction of opening the door, whatever it is, right? Or for me as a dad, right, I have this thing called an owlet. It's a sock that I put on my daughter that tells me um, when she sleeps her oxygen level and her heartbeat so that I know she's alive, right? That's peace of mind for me. Or uh, a ring alarm, right? I have, like my, I have like nothing expensive in my house, but I have literally every single window, every single door has a ring alarm on it and cameras literally everywhere to give me peace of mind. Or Aflac, I'm sure you guys have seen the commercial, like Aflac, you know. Um, I literally have like every single policy. Like they came to our church and I was like, yes to all of it. Yes, to, like take my entire paycheck, right? Literally I'm covered for anything. Like I could... I don't get a headache, get money, whatever, like literally anything. I'm, I have like every single policy. I need to dial it back because I'm paying way too But anyway, everything, right? See, all of these things are trying to promote peace in some form or another by solving the unknowns or the uncertainties of our lives, the what ifs, what this happened, whatever it is, and I'll get. And we can have peace of mind if we have maybe those uncertainties kind of planned out. But hear me in this real peace is not going to be found in a policy, it's only going to be found in a person. And so Jesus is given the title Prince of Peace because he's the only one who can bring peace between you and the most single-handed important relationship you could ever have, God. The whole reason that we have a baby in the cradle is because he would grow up to be the man on the cross that would eventually pay for your sin and my sin to reconcile, to bring us in right relationship with God once again. I'm going to start with a question. What would make you think you could ever have real peace in your lives if, you're at, if your soul is at war with its maker or its creator? I mean, truth is, right, if you are not at peace with the maker of your soul, all you can do is manufacture a peace that's temporary, and it will leave you emptier and more insecure of yourself than it was before. And so Jesus, he comes at Christmas as the Prince of Peace to give us a peace that the world cannot give us. In the book of John chapter 14, uh, verse 27, it says this, Jesus says, I am leaving with you a gift, peace of mind and heart, and the peace I give is a gift the world cannot give, so do not be troubled or afraid. The question is, why is the type of peace that Jesus gives different? The Hebrew word in Isaiah 9-6 for peace, prince of peace, is the word shalom. And its best translation is wholeness. The whole Christmas story, the whole reason that Jesus came was to make you whole. What does that mean? It means that you need nothing from the external world to tell you who you are. You don't need uh, people or your performance to tell you your value or to tell you your worth because you already know who you are. That's the greatest prayer I pray over my daughter, is that she would not need a guy in her life or she would not chase trophies or whatever it is for her to know who she is, that she's loved by her family and most importantly, she's loved by her heavenly father. Can you imagine how many, how many teenagers' lives, how, maybe, how much your life could have changed if you could have just understood that truth earlier in your life, that the only one that gets to name me, give me a sense of value, worth, and identity, is not a guy, a girl, a teacher, a coach, mom or dad, but it's my maker who loves me dearly and calls me his. I'm going to invite the band on up, and they're going to lead us in one final last song. As they are getting ready, and they're going to lead us in this song, I want to encourage you. I want to ask, and I want to encourage you to ask these questions. Here are the questions. Where in your life do you need to experience Jesus as a wonderful counselor, mighty God, or everlasting Father, or Prince of Peace? Second, where do you need his power to guide, his power to save, and his power to restore 
or his power to bring peace and his power to bring wholeness into your life. Put your arm around somebody. I'll pray for us and they'll lead us in a song. Lord God, I am. The story of Christmas is incredible. It's the story, Father, of you coming to name us. It's the story of you coming to save us and give us life. And so, Lord, I ask that if there's anybody in this room that may feel empty, may not know who they are, if they're searching in a person or a performance, God, to garner and gain some sense of value or worth, I ask this Christmas that they could open up the person and the present of Christmas, Jesus Christ. It would impute to them a sense of value, worth, and direction, God, in this life. So, Father, we thank you for being a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, everlasting Father and Prince of Peace. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope you enjoyed listening to the SCG Church Young Adults Podcast. For more information about our services, events, and ways to get involved, head on over to scgchurch.org. Thanks again for listening.